one of the families that helped start Harvest Bible Church some 19 years ago was the Acker family, Ray and Gene Acker. Ray was a retired chaplain in the U.S. Army. Lieutenant Colonel, I believe, was his, his final rank. And Ray went home to be with the Lord just, just a little bit over a year ago. It was August of, of last year. And during his retirement years, he lost most of his eyesight. I remember back to probably my first year at Harvest, some, you know, 15 years ago, I remember uh, taking Ray to one of, his dot, one of his appointments, and we got him situated into the car, and I put his walker in the trunk, or his, his walking stick, he put that away that helped him uh, to know what was coming ahead, and helped him buckle up, and we're driving down the road, and Ray perks up, and he says, hey, don't miss your turn, it's the next right. And I said, hey, I thought you were blind. He chuckled and he told me that he was legally blind, but not completely blind. We joked about that over the years. I know many of you did that with Ray. Have you ever imagined what it must like to be blind from birth? It'd be like being blind to your blindness. Eyesight is such a wonderful gift. It points to an amazing creator God. Our passage for study this morning addresses the blindness of the guilty human race. Would you please open your copy of the scriptures to the book of Romans. We continue our study through Paul's letter to the Christians who are located in the city of Rome. Paul uses this epistle to communicate the undeserved, the unmatched, the unstoppable gospel, the unstoppable good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're in chapter 3 this morning, and I want to remind us of where we're at in our study. We've divided the, the book into several categories here. We talked about the, the priority of the gospel, as Paul outlines it for us, in the first 17 verses of the book. And right now, we're in that second division, the heart of the gospel. It's, it, it begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and it runs all the way through chapter 4, verse 25, to so the end of chapter 4. And Paul communicates to us what the heart of the gospel is. It's all about the righteousness of God. It's righteousness that we desperately need if we're going to have everlasting life, if we're going to have hope beyond this world. We need the righteousness of God because our righteousness doesn't add up. We are unrighteous people. So Paul explains the righteousness of God in the heart of the gospel. and he, We've kind of divided that section up into to three different sections of, of the righteousness of God, how it's revealed through God's wrath. God... God, the righteousness of God is revealed through his wrath. And we've, we took about four sermons to think through the wrath of God. We've noted secondly that the righteousness of God reigns with justice. And that's the section that we're in right now. We're taking several sermons to think about the justice of God. And then eventually we'll come to the righteousness of God is received by faith. But right now we're considering the, the, the fact that God's righteousness reigns with justice. And we've seen that his, he has justice for the Jews, his own people. We looked at most of chapter 2 to consider his justice to the Jewish people. We've seen how there's, how there's justice with God's faithfulness. And we looked at those, those kind of difficult to understand maybe verses of, of the beginning of chapter 3, cha uh, verses 1 through 8, but that communicate to us that God is faithful in meeting out his justice. And Lord willing, today and next Lord's Day, we'll be considering the justice of God for a guilty 
human race. Paul has been hammering home the reality of our sin and God's judgment. It culminates, if you will, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Most commentators acknowledge a courtroom feel to this passage. Maybe you can listen for it as we, as we read through it this morning. For instance, verse 9 could be labeled as the arraignment. Verses 10 through 17 could be, could be labeled the indictment. Verse 18 delivers the motive. And then verses 19 and 20, the verdict. Would you please follow along as I read from God's word, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse number 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher or a grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This passage teaches us about the justice of God for a guilty human race. Christian, this passage calls you to confession of sin. This passage calls you to worship of God. If you're not yet a Christian, if you've gathered with us this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, whether you've gathered with us for the first time or you've been gathering here for years, this passage calls you to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this passage teaches us that all of us are guilty before God. All of us are blind. All of us are blinded to our guilt before God. Paul unfolds the ways in which we are blinded to our sin. So I'm going to give, for kind of organizational structure, structural purposes this morning, I'm going to give you two points for your consideration, and then we'll come to two more next week. We are blinded, first of all, to sin's inclusiveness, and then secondly, we are blinded to sin's depth. So first of all, we are blinded to sin's inclusiveness. I want to read verse 9 again. 
What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, or we could read it, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now Paul is not playing games with the text here. Uh, if you, we read verse 9, look at verse number 1. We, read, we, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. What advantage then has a Jew? Or what, is a pro, what profit is there of circumcision? And then he answers the question, much in every way. So what's, what's the difference here? Why did he, the Jews have an advantage in verse number 1? And then in verse number 9, he says that, that they're not less guilty or that they're, they're not any better than others. Verse 1, did the Jews have an advantage? Yes. They were given the oracles of God. Verse 9, does that make them less guilty? No, not at all. Because all humans are guilty before God. Jews and Gentiles are on equal terms when it comes to the justice of God and the judgments of God. All are guilty. Jews and Gentiles, male, female, rich, poor, the academic, the more simple, Democrat, Republican. In other words, it's, it's them and us. So whoever you consider them to be, remember that they are sinners and you are a sinner. That's what Paul's driving home. We're often blinded to the inclusiveness of sin, to sin's inclusiveness. There may not be another passage in all of the scripture that so plainly teaches about the universal, the, the universal curse of sin. There are no exceptions to the rule. This idea of, of both Jews and Gentiles being just as guilty before God, it was completely foreign to the Jews. They weren't thinking in this way at all. The, their thought was that they were not as bad. The Jewish people were not as bad as the Gentiles because they had received the oracles of God, because they were the chosen children of God. The same is true today. Religious people default to thinking of themselves as being better than others and more connected with God because of their supposed goodness. Religious people, and we could put all of us in there this morning, we have gathered for a sacred service of worship of, a, of our God, the one true living triune God. Religious people tend to think that we have the inside track with God and that we may not be as guilty as fill in the blank of who the, the others might be. Let's not fool ourselves this morning. We are no different. We look at our, look, look at our evil and our badness as not, as, be, as not being as bad as other people's badness. That's what we read of in Genesis 3, isn't it? When everyone was blaming everyone else. Do you see the tendency in your own heart, in your own life? Our default is that it's everyone else who is a sinner and I'm doing okay. Sometimes we work really, really hard. We expend a lot of energy to convince ourselves that we are not as bad as we actually are. We attempt to convince ourselves that we're not as bad as other people. Let's be frank. We don't think that we're as bad as so-and-so. We list our good points and we reason that our sin is not as, as dirty as others. But you realize, don't you, that if you go far enough down that road, if you take that reasoning and keep going down that road, you end up not needing a savior because you're able to save yourself because you're not as bad as 
fill in the blank. We deceive ourselves if we are convinced that someone else needs the gospel more than we need the gospel. All of us are sinners. None of us is better than the other. So, churchgoer, talking to all of us, myself included, here's a pro tip for us all. If you are frustrated by and focused on other people's sin more than your own sin, you've got a blindness problem. If you consider the pride and the selfishness or the bad parenting or the poor dress standards or the disrespect of other people as being worse than your own sin, then you're not seeing with 2020 vision. So let's take care of our own sin. Let's tend the weeds in our own hearts. Let's, let's acknowledge that our actions are ugly, that our hearts are deceitful, that our motives are evil, that our thoughts are sinful, that our words are wicked. Paul says we are not better off just because we are churchgoers. Those who think that we might have an inside track, we don't. We are all included. Verse 19, which, Lord willing, we will come to next week. He says, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the whole world may be stopped, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You're part of the whole world. Friend, if you have never acknowledged your own sin, if you have never acknowledged that you are a sinner, if you have been blinded to the reality that sin includes you, I invite you this morning to acknowledge your sin before God. I invite you this morning to call upon Jesus to be your Savior, recognizing that you are a sinner and Jesus is sinless and he made a payment for you. If you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be born again, talk with us after the service. We'd love to show you from God's word how you can be born again. Paul now moves us from the arraignment to the indictment. And he explains that we are not only blinded to sin's inclusiveness of ourselves being, being part of sin, but secondly, we are blinded to sin's depth. The evidence that Paul lays out in this indictment is grim. Frankly, there are no, there's no worse news than, than what Paul explains here. It's an ugly picture that he paints. Paul now uses six Old Testament passages to string together, I don't know if you want to think of beads or, or whatever, stringing together 13 descriptions of sin's depth. One statement right after the other that fully, that shows that there's, there's no way, there's no possibility of not being sinful, and it fully confirms that we are sinful all the way through to the core of our being. Let's briefly look at these 13 descriptions of our sinfulness with the goal of understanding our sin's depth. First of all, he says that there is none righteous. Nobody is as good as God. Not a single person can be evaluated as being righteous when they have been held up against God's standard of righteousness. Not even one. I read this illustration and I thought it was helpful. A group of people trying to jump from the shore of England to New York... They, they stood on the shore and they were getting ready to jump. A good athlete could jump maybe 25 feet or more. But some could only jump a meager 5 feet. 25 feet is, is much further than 5 feet. But the difference would be undetectable, right? If measuring their landing spot 
to the shores of Long Island. Also, their efforts would be equally futile. In other words, it doesn't matter where you fall into the water, you still fall into the water. Some may jump towards God's righteousness for five feet, or some may jump 25 feet towards God's standard of righteousness, maybe even some 125 feet, but they still hit the water. None is righteous as God is righteous. Secondly, no one understands. This is simply referring to the reality that the guilty human race has a failure to understand the things of God. Nobody naturally understands the things of, of, that are divine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said it this way to the church at Corinth, the natural person does not accept, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person does not want to think about his eternal destiny or be reminded of his eternal destiny because they do not understand it. So going back to the the jumping off of the shores of England example, it's not only that people couldn't jump from England to New York. The other reality is that if we were there trying to jump, we wouldn't even know which way to jump. We wouldn't know which way Long Island was. We would have no idea because we do not understand. Our sin is so deep that we don't understand the things of God. Thirdly, no one seeks for God. No one, no, we have no natural desire, in other words, for God, to know Him. Before our conversion, all we wanted to do was to run from God and fast. We sang it this morning when we sang, all I have is Christ. We were fugitives on the run away from God. Now, that can be confusing, right, when we say that no one seeks for God. We have to think that through a little bit because it can be confusing when we hear somebody say, well, they were searching. They were searching. I could tell they were searching for something. A philosopher from the 1600s was once asked, why there seem to be unbelievers who are searching for God. He responded, he answered, but he said that that what we see is people who are seeking for purpose in their lives. They're pursuing happiness and looking for relief from their guilt. What we see is people searching for the benefits of God only only that he gives to his children. They're not seeking for God, they're only seeking what God can give to them. Paul tells us plainly that unbelievers don't seek for God. They are looking for what God could give to them, but not for God himself. Humanity's inclination is to not seek after God. Nobody seeks Christ until Christ has has first found them. We love him because he first loved us. Paul continues down his list of 13. He's, and number four, he says, all have, have turned aside. This is talking about leaning in the, in the wrong direction. We, we think of uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned from our own way. We have turned against the way of God. In the New Testament, believers were also called the people of the way. The human race has turned from the way, the truth, and the life. Number five, we, the, the human race has become worthless. It's the word unprofitable. This is describing the human race as we enter into this world. We have we've become worthless or unprofitable. Have you ever worked for something really hard only to lose it? Maybe you're a, a college student or you've done college pa- research papers in the past and you've worked really, really hard and you forgot to hit save and then the power went out or some other terrible tragedy happened, and you lost the work that you had invested. It was worthless at that point. All the the energy that you had invested. This is Paul's idea here. 
all of our work is worthless. Apart from God's grace, we are totally useless, unprofitable, unable to produce any godly fruits. He says, number six, that no one does good. This is talking about doing good for God's glory. There's a lot that could be said here. Uh, Don't unbelievers do good deeds? Can't an unbeliever go through the drive-thru and and pay ahead and pay for your coffee as you follow them through the drive-thru? Sure. The rich young ruler did good too. We uh, we We saw that he considered himself to be good. But here Paul is talking about doing uh, good in God's book, doing good in God's eyes, as God would consider it to be good. So he's talking about the motive of the heart, what's going on inside. Are you doing good works to glorify God? There is not a single person who, apart from God's grace, can stand right before God. We are not good people. The apostle then moves to, to sins or to describing our depravity by talking about matters of, the, of conversation. He says their throat is an open grave or an open sepulcher. The speech of those who do not know God is like the stench of an open grave. Filthy, deceiving, and deadly as a cobra's bite. We read in Matthew chapter 12, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the hearts, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The spiritually dead person speaks spiritually dead words. Number eight, he says, they use their tongues to deceive. So he's giving a set of four different ways in which our conversation reveals our sinful nature. He says they use their tongues to deceive. It's, it's got the idea of luring or baiting a hook, pulling someone in, smooth tongues to deceive others. Psalm 5 says, For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. He next says, The venom of asps is under their lips. It reminds us of the poison of sin from the lies of the serpents back in the Garden of Eden. He spoke poison by twisting the truth of God. Man's sinful nature is, is not tameable. The poison of our sin is manifested in our speech. Next, he says, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's the, desire, it's, it's the idea of desiring the worst for somebody else. It's giving public criticism or defamation of someone. It's hostility towards an enemy. It's the idea of the human race being guilty by using their mouth to voice hatred for someone else. And then he goes, he, Paul shifts now and he talks about our sin is, is exemplified. It's seen not only in, in what we are speaking, but what we are doing in, in, in our actions. The 11th, the, the 11th bead in this series, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. It's not that every human being is a murderer in in the fact that they go out and and commit murder against someone else, but that every human being desires murder. Have you considered recently how murder is all around us? It's in it's in, in our heads, it's in our world, it's being played out in large cities often. Look to the the past and the the mass extermination by Nazis and, and Marxists. Look to the presence, the mass extermination through abortion. Murder is one of the evils found in the hearts of every human. Paul goes on, he says, their paths are full of of ruin and misery. There's destruction 
and sheer brutality that the human race is, is putting forward. We've seen this played out, haven't we, in recent months through destructive rioting in major cities and brutal treatment of other human beings. But lest we think it's just the people that we see on the nightly news, the sinful hearts of every human being reveal that our paths, everyone's path, as we came into the world, leads to ruin and misery. And then finally, the 13th elements revealing our sin. He says, the way of peace they have not known. Because they have known misery, they, have known misery, they don't experience peace. The human race is inclined away from the ways of peace. We've seen so much divisiveness in our country these last months. That shouldn't be surprising for us. The guilty human race is not walking the way of peace because it does not know the prince of peace. So with these 13 descriptions, the Apostle Paul makes his case, the indictment against a guilty human race. All of us. We are guilty, fully. We are guilty, fully guilty, and we are totally depraved people. We use that phrase, theologians use that phrase, the total depravity of man. It's, it's in our statement of faith here at Harvest. Let me read our statement of faith to refresh your memories, because I'm guessing that none of you have memorized the statement of faith. Here it is. The total depravity of man. We here at Harvest believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God, that he sinned and thereby incurred not only physical death, but also that spiritual death, which is separation from God, and that all human beings are born with a sinful nature and are now sinners by birth and by choice, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under the just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. We are wicked, wicked people as we come into this world. We are not as bad as possible. You and I could be doing things that are worse than we are doing. We could have had our pre-salvation life uh, darker into sin and deeper into sin. We may not have done some sins that others have done. And we can do nice things, things that the world would consider to be good. Unbelievers can do things that appear to, to be good. Total depravity means not that we have done every sin, but that we are bad all the way through. That we are evil to the core. In other words, no part of us is inherently good. A Russian poet once said it this way. I do not know what the heart of a man, of, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like. But I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it is terrible. Do we consider ourselves to be good men and women? We have terrible hearts. Being sinful is a result of our, of our fall as a human race back in the Garden of Eden. And that fall is, is further seen in the sinful choices that we make. We are sinners by birth and by choice. Friends, sin is not only a bad behavior. Sin is a matter of the heart. Our words and our lives are a, a display. It's, it's an evidence. It's proof 
of, of, of our hearts and our soul being sinful. So it's really important that we understand that Paul is not describing in these 13 descriptions, Paul is not describing a specific behavior. He's describing a condition. The human race is guilty. It's sinful before God. So, moms and dads of young people, when you discipline your kids, make sure that the most important thing that you communicate, of course, is God's grace. But as you're talking about their sin, describe the behavior, and this is what your sin is, a sassy mouth or uncontrolled anger or whatever. But those are merely symptoms of what's going on. The real issue is that they are a sinner through and through. They have a condition. They have a diagnosis. They have a status. They're a sinner. They're part of the guilty human race. And so are we adults. We do ourselves a disservice when we only note that the sinful behavior of our life without acknowledging our sinfulness. So disrespect to your husband, an unloving tone to your wife, the dishonesty in your workplace, those are reflective of a condition, of a bent towards sin. But admitting to that is challenging, isn't it? The human race, blinded to the depth of our sin. Christian, even post-salvation, we default to being blinded to the depth of our sin. In fact, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, God knew that even after our salvation, we would not have a full understanding. We'd be blinded to the depth of our sin. And in his kindness to us, not only has he extended grace to us by sending his son Jesus, but in a further act of his grace, he set up a means for us to be confronted with the depth of our sins. And in that kindness, it wasn't just a one-time means that we would be reminded one time, okay, remember your sinfulness. This means that he has set up is a regular reminder of the depth of our sin. In fact, it's a repeated reminder of the depth of our sin. It's a reminder that he ordained for our good so that we would continue to draw close to him and walk with him and remain in the way. That reminder is the local church. God instructs us to gather regularly together each Lord's Day in order that we would be confronted with the dreadful reality of our sin and the glorious reality of our salvation. Corporate worship, when we read, like Brother Phil led us this morning in Psalm 51, we're confronted with our own sin, with our own rebellion against God. When we sing, it is well with my soul, we're reminded of the glorious thought that my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. When we thank God in prayer, we thank Him for the grace that He extends to us to awaken us from the deadness of our sin. Paul David Tripp said it this way, Corporate worship is designed to humble you by pointing you to the depth of your need and enthrall you by pointing you to the glory of God's provision. When we come together, we do this. We're called to remember the depth of our sin and to be wowed by the glory of God's provision for us. So worship services that are centered around the gospel remind us that we are worse off than we that we were worse off than we cared to admit and that God's grace is better than we tend to remember. So gathering together like this 
It's not a religious duty. It's a kind of it's a kind reminder from God that the, that the depth of our sin has been superseded by the depth of His grace. Not many of us know what it's like to be blinded, physically blinded from birth. But all of us know what it's like to be spiritually blinded from birth. We are blinded to sin's inclusiveness, and we are blinded to sin's depth. God acts with justice to the guilty human race. Paul is setting us up to receive the next part of the message. It's preparation for the good news. Understanding how we are blinded to our sin and understanding how we are blinded to, to sin's depth, it's a precursor to placing faith in Jesus Christ. This passage that we've been looking at this morning is dark. And this passage, it talks a lot about our status pre-conversion of, of, of the dread of our sin. So how do we as Christians, as Christ followers, as God's children, how do we respond to the passage before us? How do we how do we process these 13 descriptions of, of the, the, the dread of our sin? What is to be our response to this passage? Let me suggest three spheres of our lives in which this passage speaks directly. First of all, it helps us with biblical evangelism. A person must understand their need of a Savior before they will call on Christ. That means this week when you go tell people about Jesus like we are called to do every week, when we go tell people about Jesus, we need to communicate the nature of our sin of the human race. Now, I don't think you have to list off all 13 descriptions that the Apostle Paul lists off in order to communicate the nature of sin. But we do, if we're going to be faithful evangelizers, we do need to communicate the dread of sin, the depravity of the human race. It's curse, it's consequences, it's condemnation. Then individuals will see their need for sin's conqueror, Jesus Christ. We can't change hearts, can we? You know unbelievers. You're praying for a neighbor, you're praying for a coworker, you're praying for an extended family member. You're, so we communicate the truth of the word, that we're dreadful sinners, we're guilty human race, and that God has given grace. And then we pray, and we pray, and we pray for our kids and for our neighbors, and we pray for those that we evangelize, that they will first understand they are sinners, and that they understand the depth of their sin. Second sphere is our own walk as Christ followers. When we read these 13 descriptions of us being in, coming into the world as sinners, when we read in verse number 9 that we, are, that we are no better off, that we are included as sinners, we're called to repentance. We're called to confession of our sin. We're called to name our sins before God and to acknowledge that we still struggle with sin. We entered into this world as sinners, and then God drew us to himself by revealing to us the depth of our sin and the glory of his grace. But even post-salvation, we have remaining sin. In other words, none of us lives without sin. And if you think you do, you need to watch this sermon again tomorrow on YouTube because we continue to struggle with sin post-salvation. Sin is still present with us. So recognize that. Fear that. Fight that. Sin destroys relationships. Sin hinders our prayer. Sin wreaks havoc in all of our life. Paul told the church at Ephesus, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
Against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. When we read a passage like Romans chapter 3, it calls us as Christians to, to confession and it calls us to fight the remaining sin that we have until Jesus comes again. Or calls us home. A third sphere of your life that this passage would be applicable to is glorious, glorious worship. When we read these 13 descriptions and we consider it seriously, we were that dirty, that destitute, that far gone, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. The two most glorious words in all of the scriptures. If sin infiltrates all the way to the core of every human being, and we, are, and we were able to help ourselves, then what? Right? We need something, something outside of us to break this, this way of sin. We need something or someone outside of us powerful enough to break in and to set people free from sin. We need someone to reverse the curse that we read of back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. We need someone whose mercy outweighs our sin. Very succinctly, we need Jesus. So when we consider this, this drastic description of our sin, and we can see how corrupt every fiber of our being is, then we see, wow, we were that far gone. We were dead. But Jesus paid the penalty for all of that sin. And he has made us completely new creatures. And old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How can we not help but worship? How can we not step back and, 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 and in glorious worship and, and bow in, in, in humility and say, Jesus, you have done this. Wow, all I have is Christ. How can we not worship the one who was reached down so low? How can we not respond with worship of the pure one becoming soiled with our evil in order that we might be cleansed from our sin? Oh, Christian, how amazing is the grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Praise Jesus. Father, we thank you.